0: And welcome to The Right Turn Fiction Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things fiction writing. Today is a super exciting day because we have our first guest on the podcast. So Vicki Lawn, thank you so much for coming. How are you today?
1: I am doing really great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So you are both a speculative fiction writer and you also run a podcast yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I run Speculative Sandbox, which is a podcast where I basically sit down with writers and we just unpack and workshop different tropes. It's a whole lot of fun specifically for speculative genres. So we include fantasy, science fiction, dystopian futures. We analyze the real world and apply it to the fictional world and I, I think it's really great because in addition to all the great resources out there, such as your own podcast, or you unpack the the skill set and technique of writing, uh, what I really like about this podcast is we just get to dive into the world building and, and the character development. And I, I really enjoy it. I, absolutely. It's a fantastic podcast
0: and link will definitely be in the description and I'll put it up on the Instagram as well if you guys are interested. Um, but I think that one of the things that I love about speculative genre specifically is I think that it's this really interesting way to kind of look through a lens at our real world and the speculative elements allow us to exaggerate or to really draw attention to the things that we see um, that maybe are good things or bad things or however we want to address that. So do you see that in your own writing in your own speculative genre?
1: Oh absolutely. And I I have to give you credit cuz your episode with me just came out this past week where we talked about um genetic 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 modifications and that in and of itself is a huge thing that comic books especially and lots of sci-fi futuristic things they love to unpack the idea of can we take what we what we're starting to do in the real world and how can we really explore that in this hypothetical situation and I think that's a lot of fun and I prefer I love doing sci-fi particularly because there's an important part of fiction writing when it comes to scientific advancements many times you know scientists are able to accomplish these great and wonderful things and what fiction writers tend to do is they apply it through the lens of human behavior and so i there was this great npr article or a story actually that i was listening to uh driving to work one day and they talked about how they wished that the science community and the science fiction writing community worked together more because the science fiction community is really good at raising the red flags and going well what about this what about that um things that you might want you might otherwise want to be really optimistic And there's so much optimism out there but fiction writing is just a great way to kind of introduce the devil's advocate and say you know what okay here's some great things but here's some also cautionary tales and what can we as a society do to anticipate these issues and hopefully prevent them
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that writers in general have this way of kind of taking things to the extreme, um, which is really, like you said, beneficial in raising these red flags and saying, hey, you know, we're not here yet, but this is where we can go. And this is something to look out for. And I think we did touch on that in the the idea of, you know, designer genetics and kind of where that's going.
1: Yeah, exactly. And how genetics can be a fantastic tool, especially for, uh, resolving health issues that, and what was interesting was when I released that episode and I asked people like, what would you change about yourself? Some of the first answers I got were people who wanted to remedy their pain. So people Mm. with spinal injuries, people who uh, rely on medication to see, um, you know, things like that. And then we started getting into the aesthetics (laughs) where people were like, I wish I wasn't bald, you know? Um, but the the fact then that you can introduce another degree of of social i guess what do you call it sociology sociology where <laughs> when you can start getting so advanced in a technology that is beneficial to us that allows customization to a degree and then the idea is well what would how would human nature push this would we end up in a in a world where suddenly if we were able to genetically modify features suddenly the world starts leaning one way or the other and how does that exacerbate existing conflicts between identities and race and all that sort of things
0: yeah yeah and these are great questions I mean these are kind of the questions that feed writing um, which kind of brings me into my my next topic so when you first started you know thinking about writing um, was it in the lens of these kinds of things or did you start younger and then kind of grow into this idea of being this kind of social commentary
1: I definitely started younger. I would say writing chose me. I didn't choose writing kind of circumstances uh, where I, thinking back, I don't know what led me to do it. I just started writing stories just to kind of get ideas out there. I was very imaginative, I guess you can say. But I do think that that nature lends itself to later as an adult, really like picking apart what i consider to be like what you would see social norms like you look around and you observe the world and you go but what if this happens and what if i alter that and i th- i think that imagination is really useful And it's kind of cool when you think about it as like a kid and how a kid kind of transforms their world and can be quite innovative with that. And then you come into the real world and you start to get settled into what the expectations are of your society to continue to be able to play and create hypothetical situations. But now that you're older and you're more informed on and maybe even more familiar with the risks. And so then you're able to now channel that towards creating fiction that challenges maybe how we normally see the world or at least brings light to otherwise um, perspectives that we don't see very often.
0: Yeah, I, I love that idea that that kind of you know, exists but then grows into something else. Cause I remember when I was young, the, the first pieces of writing that I ever did were like uh, you know, putting myself into my favorite novels. Mm. And as I look back on it, it's always this um, idea of escapism. Like that's what I really loved about writing, that I could go to this world with dragons, or I could go to this world that was better than maybe the one that I had left or or I needed something from that world. And now as I'm older, I love this idea that I can give that back, that I can create the escapism that I needed at the time.
1: Absolutely. And there's something really interesting when you start to recognize that there, there are things about our modern world today that is a product of systems that were created, right? Someone created them and are what we consider to be norm may not be norm, it just norm for our particular circumstances right for people that travel the world they see that there's so many different ways you can approach systems and to have that imagination allows you the ability to like introduce new thought like maybe this isn't Though only just because it's always been this way doesn't mean it always has to be this way and how can we explore different avenues just having that open mindedness I think is really helpful. I think one of the biggest challenges when you go out into like the real world is just as an adult functioning is, is when you, when you find people that are kind of locked into this sense of well this is the norm and I don't want it to change in any way. Um, it's good that we have writers writer minds that can challenge those. Um- I've always said that
0: my, the worst reason to give for why you're doing something is because it's always been that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I really hate that reason. And so I love this idea of opening up kind of you know, the box of what is possible, even if that's looking at um, other times, other cultures, future times that haven't existed. Right. Right. Completely speculative. Mm -hmm. So as you have been on this uh, writing journey, um, kind of how how did you go from kind of the first thing that you published to what are you writing now? What does that journey look like for you?
1: So it's interesting because when I talk in terms of publications, I've, I've I've self-published short stories on like my blog, but I have a lot of published works that are that have a different target audience and have a different purpose. But I I, I enjoy talking about this though because it does leak into my fiction writing and what my current journey is now. So I am a communications manager for a local government and I do a lot of ghost writing, speech writing, copywriting, content writing, magazine writing, newsletters. So I, for the last 10 years of my life, I've just publication after publication after publication and it's in a completely different tone i guess you can say from fictional writing but what it does is it teaches it it makes me comfortable with being perceived and i think that uh, what i hear from a lot of fiction writers that are just kind of getting started they're like how do you actually let people read what you wrote like that seems to be like the scariest first cliff that you have to jump off of and i think in the terms of those publications that, that it helped me with that so not only are you being perceived however you're also being mindful of your target audience and that's something else that also leaks into fiction writing there's a fear that your work will not be well received by everybody, and I think the first takeaway is your your work is for a target audience, and if you're the person reading your work isn't in the target audience, you're probably not going to win them over, right? They're not going to like you, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a reflection on your your own self value. So that was a really valuable skill, um, and then other skills too is just because of the sheer volume in which I have to get things out there in front of people. Um, it was a really good way to develop outlining editing, polishing, all those types of skills. So um, I guess that's the best way I could answer that question since I currently don't have a book out yet, but I am in the process of doing just that.
0: Yeah. And congratulations, because that process, uh, as we both know, is so arduous and takes so long. And um, you kind of, you know, you have this thing that you love that was birthed from love. And then you have to go back and say, okay, but is the thing that I made what I want it to say and is that marketable because there is this dual you know reality to the publishing market which is the book can be great but if no one wants it if you're not hitting that target audience like you said then no one is going to take it to publication
1: yes and i my biggest lesson so far in this traditional publishing journey is that target audience is so important i think that's probably one of my biggest uh, obst- obstacles, I guess you can say, especially when you're trying to introduce a new idea. And really, ultimately, it's about the perfect fit. But when you're working with like the top five publishing houses, they care about how many like, quantities of books they can sell. And it's all formulated. So when they look at what your story is, and they put it up against all their formulas, they determine, okay, based off of our knowledge of our target audience, we think we're going to sell this much. And if you don't get past that threshold, then they don't pursue working with you. So it's that's probably the most surprising thing for me was like oh target audience is really important. But I mean that also kind of goes into a greater discussion when you talk about like it's a product, right? We're talking about the traditional book industry. But then you also want to talk about the artistry of writing and sometimes new ideas challenges the norm and expectations of what a target audience might be, uh, find appealing. I think it was just in the last five years where we really started getting a large amount of minority represented books. And I can imagine like in the past, they weren't really, it, it wasn't appealing to publishing authors. That's why you had so many minority stories that weren't written by minorities. I, there was a perception back then that has shifted. Now it's really important that if there's a minority voice that it has representation in its author. So things change over time right? The idea
0: of this hashtag own voices, right? That people are telling stories that are actually meaningful to them and not an an outside perspective on a story. Um, And so, you know, when we go into that idea of target audience, so when you are formulating formulating a story for the first time, do you think you have that target audience in mind or will you going forward or do you start more from the artistry and then kind of work backwards to sell it once it's done?
1: Well, I've learned so much. <laughs> uh, let's see, where do I even start? Uh, because a lot of the things that I okay, my biggest my biggest challenge right now is so I specialize in own voice. Um, I got into it when I found out the publishers were looking for own voice. And I said, well, the best way that I can represent my mixed race, diverse background is my mom and and me. And so then that led to creating a story of, and I know that this is something that a lot of people talk about. The Asian American community has a lot of memes and YouTube videos and clips about the parent-child relationship. And I was like, all right, I know that this is, it's a little niche, but I know that there's an audience for it. Uh, so I wrote thinking about that. But then I started pulling from a lot of things that I knew worked well within specifically the sci fi genre that I was working in. And I was trying to make it as appealing as I could to not just P- Vietnamese American descent, but anyone with an immigrant family, or anyone that might have some sort of issues with a hypercritical mother. And so for me, it was the hope of like, you take this narrow idea that, you know, it's okay, a Vietnamese American woman and her mother. And then you expand it and you go, this is actually a very universal experience for many people, not everybody. But, you know, the same can be said about, like, if you look at what is the default POV of America that I didn't identify with that one for the longest time growing up, because that wasn't my upbringing. I wasn't raised in a traditional white family. So um, that that's kind of where I go. Um, I think tropes it was funny is like tropes people can make fun of tropes oh it's a trope but tropes can be your friend as far as identifying what works with audiences and how you can use it for your purposes so I guess that's the best way I could answer that question is like what is the universal feeling within your experience or your character's experiences that many people could hopefully relate to right and this kind of goes back
0: to the idea of write what you know and I've long held the idea that um that's kind of a too narrow of a. A a sentence for a lot of people. It is write what you know and write what you've been through, but then be able to expand on that, like you were saying, and to be able to make an experience that is very niche, then be relatable to people who maybe even haven't gone through that but have a hypercritical someone in their lives even if it's not a mother it could be uh it could be anybody it could be anybody that was influential in shaping somebody and that's not to take away from the lived experience but that is to just to say that stories have the power to touch people who maybe have never lived through what the story is talking about and i think that is a beautiful thing
1: a Thank you. And I, I agree so much with what you said there. Um, I think that ultimately, and we I'm sure you've talked about this as as well, but there's like the heart, right? You got to find the heart to your characters. And I think if you can find that relatable heart, it, it helps a lot. Um, from there, as far as like target audience goes, I think it really comes down to what are the publishers expecting and what are their perceptions too of what is relatable so it's it's a really interesting experience that I've been through now as I've gotten myself to several acquisition boards and I've heard feedback on their ideas of target audience and being able to reach that the the big audience that they want and I think if I had to there's no way I can change anything about the traditional book industry but I would love it if authors were able to represent themselves more in the process. Mm-hmm. And, and especially when you're trying to appeal to an audience that might be considered new <laughs> to the traditional book industry, especially since the diverse voices has only been really pushed in the last five years.
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm really hoping that the Internet allows this kind of openness that you're talking about, that we don't necessarily have to be bound by what a traditional book publisher wants and, and what they say is going to sell really well. And there can be this ability for authors to say, no, I have a story. It's a good story. And it means something to me, to my community and to anybody who has been in a situation that is similar to that. So now, as you're going through that process and you're getting this feedback, and now I'm sure you're starting like a very intensive editing process, um are there some methods that work better for you? Are you kind of a whole rewrite person? Are you a line by line editor? How does that look for you?
1: So, for this particular project, where it looks like I am looking at a revision, um, I have a pretty good idea of where I think, they, they were on board and then they decided this is going into a realm that kind of makes the target audience smaller than what they would like. So I, so I'm, I'm aware of that point on, it's basically the second half. So for me, it's like, okay, what, what are they expecting for what I'm assuming they think the genre of this book is based off of the first half. And, um, admittedly looking at my own work i can i can i can i get it right i, I get it like i i'm really good at getting feedback i love people. i actually love the editing process uh because sometimes i can feel like i'm so in my own head that it's like i can't tell the difference from like the roots from the trees from the branches right so mm-hmm. for for me i appreciate more guidance and so for this past week i've been basically killing all my darlings, creating a duplicate of the draft, deleting everything that I think is what they can't identify with. And then I just start rewriting the synopsis. And I think like for me, anytime you make such a huge change like that, you got to go back to that prompt and that synopsis. And that's the thing I actually learned uh, when I got my agent in the first place. A lot of writers, while they're trying to get their agent, they may think, I never have to worry about this dang prompt and synopsis until like, I'm going to get my agent. I'll never have to worry about it again. In the meantime, this is the worst document I've ever had to write. And <laughs> what I've learned is that it becomes the new foundational document for any future project that you want to write. So anytime I had a pitch or a new project, my agent would be like, okay, send me the prompt and the synopsis. And I'll let you know if, I'll, if I want to work with you on that project. I'd be like, okay. So it literally became like the, like the standard. And so now as I am revising the story, it's back to the prompt, back to the synopsis. And I'm like, okay, how can I craft out a brand new plot structure that meets what they are preferring to expand the audience while still preserving the point of the story. And so that's been a really interesting challenge. I'm willing, you know, I told myself I was going to try to give myself like every chance to do this. I consider it a great learning opportunity. So we'll see where this takes me.
0: Yeah. uh, And then that, um, reminds me of, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years, and especially through an MFA program where you're kind of, I mean, you're sharing work all of the time and some of the feedback that you get is super helpful. Some of the feedback you get, you're like, did did you read it though? Because I don't understand that." Um, is to always ask. I always ask my readers now where do you think it is going? And I'll give them like two or three points in the story where I will stop them and I'll say, where do you think it is going from here? And part of that is to know a, if it's too predictable. Um, but B is to know what expectations am I laying down that I may not even realize that I'm doing. So have you had a similar experience with that?
1: Interesting. Um, I would say well for my beta readers that read this story they were on board the whole way through. Um, I think for some of the agents and some of the editors I think they I think that was what they like what I was laying down in the first half they were surprised by the direction it took in the second half. And unfortunately it took me all the way through there to to get that feedback. And then that that's that just calls into the question like how everything is so subjective in the traditional writing so my beta readers they loved that I took it full sci-fi in the second half it gets like I wanted to take people on a wild ride it started with a road trip and it ends with like this craziness and I think their expectation was the started with the road trip keep it a road trip and I'm like okay Mm -hmm. so how can I and by that it means like it keeps the pace balanced Versus I think they got past my first half and it just took off and they're like, whoa, 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 where, what is this? And I think that is a common pitfall that I do hear from a lot of writers that are, that are talking about how they, they make a choice in the second half that wasn't properly established in the first half. And, mm-hmm. um, again, it also comes down to, to preference and who knows, I still have a couple more editors that are looking at this project. I'm just kind of prepping for revisions right now in case I don't hear from them and they might actually end up loving it. Like, I don't know. <laughs> so It's, it's an interesting question, but I think you raise a really good point of, you know, are you setting up the expectations that you should have right now? I'm listening to a podcast. It's called Xena warrior podcast, and it unpacks every single episode of Xena, my favorite show in the world. And it's by three film students or graduates. It's from film school, and I listen to the way that they literally pull apart every single scene and how the lines all uh, establish an expectation that's followed up later and how everything's linked together. And I'm like, wow, that degree of um, analysis is really helpful in helping you kind of realize what you're doing as you're setting down your own path in your story.
0: That's really interesting that you say that because I have a very similar journey with a show called Avatar: The Last Airbender. Are you familiar? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Even my uh, my Zoom icon is a waterbender symbol. Um, but it's, it's I mean, it's a masterpiece of storytelling. And uh, we could talk about the second season, not the second season, the second show, which is Korra, which I have different feelings about. But um, because I have watched that show so many times and like really absorbed it, it's one of the first places that I really saw the idea of Uh, planting and payoff this idea that you can plant something and then kind of let it sit let it sit let it sit and then all of a sudden nine episodes later or in the case of one of the characters has a a very powerful redemption arc um, he kind of goes from the main antagonist to one of the main protagonists um But if you go back and you watch it, you see the glimmers of that literally from episode one. And so it's one of the places I think TV is a great place to learn this idea of planting and payoff and expectations and kind of what you feel as you're learning about these characters and then be able to use that in your own story.
1: I love that. And I I love fandoms for that, too, especially when. I don't know, like Game of Thrones or any of those like major HBO Succession. Uh, I've followed the fandom on Twitter, and man, the level in which they would unpack and try to predict—I mean, it was really fun. Uh, and then I think what happens is uh, this is—I'm kind of going into a different kind of uh, debate that I kind of stumbled upon, where people are like, "Okay, if people are like, that's modern day storytelling right now, right? Your modern day audience is able to analyze you so deeply, and in." In the world of TV, where things are slowly being unrolled, they're able to anticipate and, in many times, successfully guess what's going to happen later. And then I've noted, I've I've seen where some TV shows have tried to avoid that. They're like, no, we have to keep them guessing. We just surprise them completely. And then many times they argue that that could be why it was a total mess at the end. Um, versus how they just stuck to their storyline and had a satisfying payoff. Succession is a really good example of like they stuck to the guns of the theme, and you know people had all their guesses of who was going to be the 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 winner at the end of Succession, uh, but ultimately like when you look at the whole arc of the story and the characters, it made complete and total sense and cohesion. I think an example where. I feel like the fandom and the creators are kind of playing with each other a little bit was Game of Thrones, where um, things just kept, I think they kept trying to just fool the fandom. And in the end, it felt less than satisfactory.
0: Yeah, and I think this is kind of where, you know, the artist and the industry professionals are on opposite sides of the same coin. And I feel like we get into this with agents and editors a lot of times because it's a very thin line that you want to thread. You know, you want to have a story that when you get to the ending, it feels like, oh, I should have seen that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even if they do see it coming, I, provided it's not boring, I take it as a compliment of, okay, I planted all those things and you got so into it that, you know, you were able to see that. Um, and I think on the opposite side, the agents and the editors are looking at, well, what is going to be The best experience for the audience that we are trying to satisfy, and so you know, um, giving them the the maximum benefit of the doubt as I can. If they they, I think they really do love books, and they really do want their audience to have this really good experience. Um, And so, just you know, we're coming at it from opposite angles, and sometimes that results in having to ask, okay what parts of the story are really necessary and what parts of the story can I give up and can I change or compromise or accept even if it's a a good suggestion. Um, I imagine that because I've queried a couple agents now and most of the feedback I've gotten, I'm like, okay, you and I are not meant to work together. and That's totally fine. But some of the feedback that I've gotten uh, has sat there and I thought about it and I went, oh, I see where you're coming from. And I kind of like that idea. So have you had that experience with industry professionals?
1: as far as like the feedback they gave me and how it would like better improve the the work yeah 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 uh yeah I have um in that, this particular project I it's funny I can divide the agents that re- responded to me into two camps the ones that you know, loved it as is and the ones that said uh we think you should change the second half <laughs> <laughs> because of x y and z <laughs> and and so I went you know clearly, you know, you stick it out through the querying process. And when, like I had several agents that literally said, revise and resubmit with this idea. And I will gladly, this will blow up. I, I will gladly represent you. And then right after then I got four um, re- offers of representation for the way that it was. So I was like, okay, well, I'm assuming this means that it's good as is. And again, you it's a very subjective kind of industry, but now I'm running into that same thing with editors where some of them are identifying the same thing as these agents. And I was like, wow, this that's really interesting. So I mean, I, I can relate that to I see writers on Twitter who are like, you know, they have all these expectations of what I should do with my book if they want me to to represent it. Um, I, sh- I don't know if I want to do that, if I want to, you know, change my vision and stuff like that. And and all I could think from my experience is, well, the the wall I ran into with some of those agents, I'm running into again further down the line right. years later. And so it's like um, it's about it's about fit, as you said, but it's also about being open to, you know, maybe they have a point and being and just, you know, you're in the you're in the industry. The traditional industry is about your product. And what you mentioned about experience is so important because it is ultimately about the author's experience, the reader's experience versus maybe the author's expectations. And um, a, a good example of this is info dumps. I think it's really easy for writers and myself included to just dump everything out because it helps us in the writing process. And then, okay, well, it's been dumped. So I don't, you know, it's just, it's there. So I'm going to move on with the story. And then a lot of the common advice you hear is try to avoid the info dump and said, weave your info along with the story plot as it comes up. And as a reader, I the thing I struggle with the most, actually, is other writers' info dumps, uh, particularly in the fantasy genre, because it's so much at right at the beginning that I'm not familiar with. And I can understand why a lot of agents say weave it through, because the reader's experience is so much easier, they're more likely to keep reading.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Without naming any names, I remember I read one sci-fi book that literally had a character reading an encyclopedia and that encyclopedia article appeared multiple times throughout the the book and so it felt like i was reading a companion to like a sci-fi series you know how they make those that it tells you all about you know, this character does this and this species does this that was what the novel felt like and it was really unsatisfying oh, um yeah. and and so i yeah i totally understand that feedback the idea of you know trying to avoid these these big dumps i tend to dump i don't know about you i tend to info dump at the beginning of something. So uh, I usually have to cut about three pages off my uh, beginning of the novel. And sometimes I have to cut a couple paragraphs off the beginning of chapters Mm because usually I write myself into them. I have to get situated before I, I really get into it.
1: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's why uh, when the first draft sometimes is just for you. It's it's for the writer to get it all out there. You're telling yourself the story. And that means a lot of weird, awkward info dumping paragraphs. And then so um, I have a friend who is in the middle of her first draft and she keeps running it by readers and they keep giving her feedback that keeps kind of interrupting her thought process. And I finally had to tell her, I'm like, your, your your story isn't for them just yet. It's for you. Just get through that first draft, polish it up, and then you can start getting the reader feedback that'll be more meaningful for you in the long run. I hope that, sorry, I hope that works. And I, I was a little bit disjointed. No, totally. That makes a lot of sense. I have this saying that I really like
0: that, Um, you know, I keep repeating to myself and it's the first draft is to make it exist. The second draft is to make it legible. And the third draft is to make it beautiful.
1: I love that that's such a great way of thinking. I'm going to I'm going to borrow that. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, please do. Uh well Vicky, thank you so
0: much for coming and chatting. Um I think the the last question that I have for us today is do you have any advice for writers who might be looking to go through this process, who might be looking to, you know, write a
1: novel and put it in front of the traditional agents and publishers? I would definitely say and it might be hard for people who consider themselves pantsers um definitely practice writing query prompts and synopses even before you write your first draft just to get it out there and thinking about it because if you are serious about wanting to go the traditional publishing route and you do and you eventually will have to write one anyway for your agent um, to get an agent many times writers will write the whole story and then they get to the synopsis and then they realize they made a plot error. And by then, they have to go back now and, and fix all of that. It's, a, it's, like, it's like moving a cruise liner versus a boat. So I, I highly recommend that. Um, additionally, it's going to become your new normal anytime you want to pitch a new project. So it's just good practice to work on that first. Just And then you can modify it as you go. It doesn't have to stay exactly that way.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, I encourage everybody to check out Speculative Sandbox and hopefully in you know a couple months or maybe a little bit longer, we'll be able to have you back on and we can talk about the end of the process.
1: I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
0: All right. We'll have a great day. Uh, good luck to everybody out there and we'll see you next time. Oh.